Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today we return for a part two of our analysis, critique of um, my interview with Hank Hanegraaff, the president of the Christian Research uh, Institute. Um, he is the current Bible answer man, uh, or have so some have dubbed him the orthodox uh, answer man, and I think that is um, a very perceptive uh, way of um, you know titling him. Um, I think these issues that uh, we covered in our last um, episode where Dr. Tony Costa really went in uh, to clarify and to correct certain points uh, that Hank made in my discussion with him, I think it's very important that we really um, emphasize uh, the importance of knowing history within the context of the Christian life but also within the context of apologetics, okay? When we deal with our Roman Catholic friends, our Orthodox friends, um, it tends to be the case that many uh, Protestants are not very much in touch with the, the history of the church. And so I think um, it's very important that we cover these issues. And uh, I'm not a, a historical scholar, but um, I love to learn about this stuff. I realize it's super important and it's definitely edifying for people who are listening. And so it is an honor and a pleasure to have um, scholars and and someone of uh, Tony Costa's uh, knowledge to come on and share um, a more historical perspective, a defense of a reformed Protestant uh, perspective, and to offer, I think, a a clear and biblically based and historically rooted um, uh, critique of the Orthodox position. So uh, without further ado, I don't want to waste too much time um, because we want to make it through the rest of this video. We don't intend to do a, a part three uh, of this discussion. Um, so we're going to jump right in and I'm going to uh, just uh, invite Dr. Tony Costa back on the screen with me and then we will begin right away. How's it going, Dr. Uh, Costa? How are things? I'm doing well, Eli. Uh, how are you doing? I'm hanging in there. I had a nice long day. I, I, I worked full time from morning to uh, around 3.30, rushed home. I was on Iron Sharpens Iron Radio for uh, two hours, <laughs> yeah. took a quick nap, and then now we're, we're here. So um, I really appreciate you coming back on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Look forward to it. All right. Well, just real quick for those who are, are listening, I know we just got started, just waiting for some more folks to, uh, to come in. Um, Dr. Costa will be taking questions at the end. Um, so please, if you have any questions, feel free to type them in the chat and I will uh, share them with Dr. Costa when that portion of this episode uh, comes up. Okay. If, uh, if you uh, wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, we do appreciate your super chats. Uh, those questions will go straight to the top. And um, and those of you who don't give super chats, we'll try our best to get to your questions also, okay? Um, and uh, just a real quick announcement. They're going to jump right into this. Um, we are currently in the works. Well, I have a friend of mine who is has been gracious enough to um, uh, work on a Revealed Apologetics website. Um, which is I'm very excited about, and he's um, been so generous to do it free of charge, um, and he is kind of knowledgeable in that kind of techie side of things, and so I greatly appreciate that, and hopefully when that's up, I can share that with you guys, and um, revealedapologetics.com can be a resource for people apologetically for Reformed um, theology as well, uh, just a resource for folks to uh, kind of equip themselves and to um, really just edify the body, so looking forward to that. Well, without further ado, I'm going to uh, share my screen. If you see, that's what, what we did last time. And let me actually enlarge the screen, if that's possible, here like that. Uh, there we go. Much better. And we're just going to dive right in. So, uh, Dr. Costa, I'm going to press play. 
and you just stop me where you think we need to stop or if I sure. find a spot where I think we need to stop, we'll stop, okay? No problem. All right, let's let's begin. Uh, books that are there, there are 46 okay. books as opposed to uh, 39 books in mm -hmm. the Orthodox canon and there are parts sure. of books as well that are included. You have Maccabees, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees. So okay. there are many books that are included in the Old Testament canon they're part of the Septuagint, and they're referenced in the New Testament, sometimes indirectly, but nonetheless, uh, they're referenced. And uh, But the biggest part of this is the fact that they're part of the Septuagint. Hmm. Okay, we can stop there so now, uh, if you'd like. Okay, so from a Protestant perspective, and this usually comes up between the... Okay. Yeah, I was, what I was just going to say is that we, we often hear about the Apocrypha being in the Septuagint. Now, the the, the full um, manuscript of the Septuagint that we have today was obviously collected by Christians. Um, but to say that it was part of the Apocrypha, remember last week I was with you, I mentioned Robert uh, Roger Beckwith's book, uh, The Old Testament Canon in the New Testament Church. And he points out that the Jews uh, in the Hellenistic world we're familiar with these other books, but they still held to the canonical books that we have in our Hebrew Bible, and what we call the Masoretic Text. And um, because a number of books were added to some of the biblical books, there's a there's a tendency for people to think that they were considered canonical. So we do have New Testament manuscripts where you'll have, for example, you'll have First Clement, or you may have another writing of a church father. And the reason for that, among many reasons, is uh, lack of available resources, a lack of the papyri was very, very expensive. Um, but just because the full copy we have today, the full manuscript of the Septuagint, because it has the Apocrypha, the assumption is, well, therefore, these, these Jews in the Hellenistic world accepted them. That doesn't necessarily follow. We hmm. know that in Qumran, where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, we do know that uh, some of these books were also found there. For example, they found uh, the Book of Enoch in, in Qumran. They found um, the, a book called the Genesis Apocryphon that was found there as well. But they also found, they also found uh, commentaries, community commentaries, and, and commentaries on the Bible called Pesherim. Now, this doesn't mean that the Jews accepted all of these documents on the same level with the scriptures. So I think we just need to be careful there. Uh, and that's why I recommended Roger Beckwith's book because he goes into great detail to show that uh, that uh, the the Jews of Jesus' time did not hold these books to be uh, inspired. There was a term that they used. They talked about. Uh, they said that uh, the word the books laid up in the temple. This was a term that Jews would use to refer to the canonical books, and they would also describe the the books of the canon were books that defiled the hands. Now that may sound a little odd. But the idea was because they were so sacred, these texts would actually defile your hands. That's why, if you notice, when the Jews read the, the, the scriptures, they use this little hand, you know, the little thing with the hand, the pointer. That's right, that's right. You know, it's called the Yad. That means hand in Hebrew. Uh, you know, you've okay. heard of Seinfeld, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and the idea is that you're reading <laughs> along, right? It's because it's sacred. Okay. The text is sacred. Uh, the apocryphal books uh, do not defile the hands. They, 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 the Jews said, these books don't defile the hands. The implication being they're not inspired.
They're not considered mm. sacred texts. So uh, we hear this a lot. Uh, this is why I highly recommend uh, Professor uh, uh, Roger Beckwith's book on this topic. He goes into great detail to show that these apocryphal books were not accepted as authoritative. We can look at Josephus, first century Jewish historian. Josephus says, we have 22 books that we regard as sacred. And those 22 books, uh, the number 22 is based on the fact that the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And also uh, they take certain books and they join them together. So Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. Uh, the, the, the 12 minor prophets are considered one book, the book of the 12. That's why they come up with number 22, but they're the equivalent of our 39. Now you use the word uh, Septuagint, which again, when we do uh, live streams like this with this specific topic, we, we presuppose that the audience has somewhat of a background, yeah. but why don't you briefly define what the Septuagint is? Yeah, yeah, the word Septuagint means 70. Um, and uh, it, it comes from the Latin word Septuagint, the 70. And this is, uh, this is the name of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so for Jews living outside of Israel, outside of the land, these, these Jews forgot their mother tongue. Right, just like our kids, they're born in sure. North America, and you know, uh, my kids, they, they, they come from a Portuguese background, but their Portuguese sounds like Pig Latin. I mean, you wouldn't even understand it. And I'm <laughs> sure you, you can resonate with this too, Eli. When your kids get older, you'll notice that they probably won't know any Spanish or maybe a few words here and there. Well, well, I don't speak that. My, I, I'm an so, example. I, I've you're lost an example the language of that. So you've I been anglicized. So you've been yes. anglicized, and so. So a lot of these Jews were were Hellenized. That is, they 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 adopted Greek culture. They learned the Greek language. So because they didn't have the the Bible in their tongue, there was a translation made. It is believed that it began in 250 BC, uh, starting with the Torah, the first five books of Moses. That's where we get the word Pentateuch. Pentateuch is Greek for the five scrolls, the five books. And then uh, the other books were added, like the prophets and the historical books and so forth. Uh, so the Septuagint then is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is the primary Old Testament text that the New Testament quotes from because the New Testament was written in Greek and uh, the apostles preached uh, in a Greco-Roman world where the Greek language was the lingua franca of the world. Uh, and therefore, uh, Paul, for example, he's writing to the Corinthians, the Philippians. These folks have no idea about the Hebrew text because they can't read Hebrew. So they were familiar with the Septuagint and therefore the New Testament at about 85 to 90% of the time quotes from that version of the Old Testament. So, mm -hmm. and the abbreviation scholars use for this Old Testament translation, uh, uh, this Greek translation of the Old Testament is LXX, Roman numerals for 70. All right, very good. Thank you for that. Uh, just real quick, folks, there are more people watching from when we started. I just want to throw out the reminder, uh, Dr. Costa will be taking questions. So if you do have questions, please share them in the chat. Now is the time to ask them and we'll get back to them um, later on. Okay. Also be sure to share this video. I'm sure folks, uh, if you have Roman Catholic friends or Orthodox friends, this uh, will definitely make for an interesting listen uh, and hopefully encourage some uh, good dialogue. Um, all right. So let us continue and um, we'll take it from here. In sure. the context of, and you're spot on with regards to uh, Protestants and Catholics having more of that connection than than the Eastern Church. Um, but to the Protestant sensibilities, when when we observe what goes on, oftentimes in Roman Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox. So, so why don't you talk a little bit about the Eastern Orthodox perspective with regards to, um, have you been able to hear that? Yes. 
Okay, just checking. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Why, when a Protestant uh, visits an Eastern Orthodox church and listens to some of the teaching and theology, they will hear things that kind of I'm joking around makes Protestants break out in hives. There seems to be things that are inconsistent uh, to the Protest to Protestant ears. Why don't you explain uh, why that's the case? and go into the reasons why that's not a big deal, or maybe I'm representing the issues incorrectly. Uh, why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah, well, I think it's a really good question, Eli. I, I think when you go to an Orthodox church, when you walk through the church doors, uh, you immediately recognize that you're there to worship God. Uh, the liturgy in an Orthodox church bathes you in the Word of God. In fact, if you follow the liturgical calendar, you're steeped in scripture. And I think that's a big, big difference from modern day evangelicalism, where oftentimes the Bible is, is used as a point of departure. And many people that carry Bibles have never really read the Bible or memorized the Bible or mined the Bible for all substantial worth. Mm -hmm. So in orthodoxy, you get absolutely washed in the word of God. Yeah, and we'll, we can stop there, Eli. Okay. Worshiping God. It's not about it. Yeah. Um, the impression there is that a lot of these Orthodox, a lot of these Orthodox folks are are immersed in God's word and so forth. Um, I know a number of people in the Orthodox Church, and I can uh, I can share. With you, and this is not a blanket statement. I'm not saying this is the case with all Orthodox members, but sure. many of them don't know the Bible. Uh, very much like my, our Roman Catholic friends uh, raised in the church. Many of them don't know the Bible. So uh, I'm not exactly sure what Hank is getting at there because most of the Orthodox folks I know have very little biblical knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and the other problem, of course, is this, you know, the language of we enter through the, the doors of the church and we know that we're worshiping God. So uh, again, the, 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 the word church here, is, as, as you very well know, the word ecclesia, the word for church is, is an assembly. It, it, we need to get this idea of a building with steeples and domes and stained glass windows. We really need to get that out of our heads. The idea is that the word church refers to an assembly of people. It's the people of God where two or three are gathered in my name. I am there in their midst. And so for the Orthodox, the church building is like the house of God, much like the Roman Catholic Church. This is sacred ground. And this is where the sacraments or the mysteries are, are uh, practiced and so forth. And, and so what you'll notice is that when he talks about the liturgy of the church, uh, much like the Roman Catholic Church, you have this liturgical year where you have the same readings. The Lutheran Church has it as well, and the, and the Anglican Church has it as well. Um, but, but again, there's so much to be said here, because in the liturgical calendar of the Orthodox Church, you have the Dormition of Mary, when Mary passed away and then she was taken up. Uh, and then you have the saint, the days of the saints, the various saints and so forth. So I don't see a lot of being washed in God's word when it comes to issues like the, the you know, the Dormition of the Virgin and, and uh, the, uh, the birth of John the Baptist and the, the, this saint and St. Constantine and St. Helen and, and so forth. So when you look at the liturgical calendar of the Orthodox Church, you'll notice a lot of it revolves around uh, various saints uh, mm -hmm. and various events in the life of Mary and and events in the life of of John the Baptist, for example. So, you know, well, it's, Dr. it's Dr. Costa. Yeah. Let me let me yeah. ask this question, and yeah. and I know that you can't speak with regards to all Orthodox churches, but yeah. you see, within Orthodoxy, you have Scripture, you have tradition. Yeah. Okay, yeah. they hold it to equal authority. 
right? Right. Um, do you see or do you find in your own experience that while they say that and they believe that, that tradition tends to overshadow emphasis Absolutely. upon scripture? Absolutely. Um, so much so that when you enter there, because I've been to Orthodox uh, services or, and and okay. uh, you, um, one of my professors at the university was a Ukrainian um, Catholic priest who was part of the, the Uniate. The Uniate are a group of churches that are orthodox in their liturgy but they they've come under the, the the pontiff of rome they come under the roman church so they're in communion with the roman church so part of the uh, the worship of god that that hank talks about is when you enter into these orthodox churches um there's also the 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 prayers to mary they they pray to the theotokos she's called the theotokos which means the god bearer, god -bearer the, yeah. the mother of god and and so it's there's also kissing the icons and so when you come in you will kiss the icons and you will do the sign of the cross now in the west in the roman catholic church you, you do it this way it's it's up down and then left to right but in the eastern orthodox it's up down right to to left and okay. i always taught my students the best way to remember is this so west is roman catholic and east is eastern orthodox so they always okay. cross themselves the <laughs> other way but kissing of the uh, the 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 icons and so forth um Again, this brings up a lot of questions about, is this proper worship of God? Mm -hmm. um, you know, addressing the Virgin and praying to the Virgin, the, the, the Theotokos, is that the proper worship of God? Um, so again, we believe as Reformed Christians, what Romans 10, 17 says, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In the Orthodox Church, if you ever enter an Orthodox Church, the first thing you are struck with is not the word of God. Mm -hmm. The first thing you are struck with is these icons. The place lights up with colors, and there's icons uh, all over, and there's <clears throat> there's a standard up at the front. There's the altar, and you'll always find a, a picture of Christ with the Book of Life, and then the Theotokos on the other side, and then you'll have um, Michael the Archangel, Gabriel the, the the Angel, and so forth. So, so what you find is that when you enter these churches, you are visually attracted. There's a visual orientation. Same with the Roman sure. Catholic Church. When you go into a Roman Catholic Church, your your eyes are drawn to the altar, to the front, right? Whereas in 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 Reformed uh, Protestant churches, you know, we walk into a building, and what is this the centerpiece of, of the building? It's not the altar; it is the pulpit. Mm -hmm. So that our focus is not visual. Well, if you don't go to well, if you don't go to a church where the focus is the stage <laughs> with the smoke yeah, machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the rock band and the new rock band. Uh, uh, right, so, right. so the point of the Reformation was to bring this back to the hearing of God's word because they understood that faith comes by hearing. It's not by seeing icons and, and being visually stimulated. It is mm -hmm. by hearing the word of God. That is the means by which God has decreed that he will save fallen human beings by the preaching of his word that is to be heard. And that is why, again, we focus on the reading of God's word, not on the visual uh, icons and 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 uh, statues and so forth. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, let's continue on here. And there we go. About an extravaganza for for orthodoxy, the church is the center of the universe and the center of the liturgy. In fact, the liturgy is the Eucharist. So when okay, we let's stop there. in Orthodoxy partake... Okay. <laughs> yeah, the center of 
the center for orthodoxy. Here's this quote for orthodoxy. The church is the center of the universe. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible mm -hmm. doesn't say that the church is the center of the universe. The Bible says that in all things, Christ is to have the supremacy. The preeminence is his. Right. Christ is the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. All things were made through him and they were made by him and for him. He is the beginning and the end. All of creation converges on Christ and all of creation will one day bow the knee to Christ and confess his Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the centrality of Christ here, when he says for orthodoxy, the church is the center of the universe, uh, that's not what Colossians 1, 15 to 18 says. It says that in all things, he must have the preeminence. Christ is the center of the universe. Um, so again, there's this elevation of the church, something that we don't see in scripture. In scripture, mm -hmm. it is he that must increase, we must decrease. Um, so I just found it a little odd that, uh, that he would say that. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Let's see here. Boom. All right. Of the Eucharist, we're partaking of the real presence of Christ. So we're being, we're being transformed through the graces that are partaken of within the context of the church. So for an Orthodox person, this is not going to church. This is embracing a whole life, a life that's transformational. So in Western theology, the arc typically runs from fall to redemption. In Orthodoxy, the arc runs from creation to deification. As well. I'm going to stop there. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Because once he said that, yeah. the, my, my antenna came up. It almost looked like he was trying to give the impression that the Protestant view is kind of short-sighted, yet the Orthodox right. view encompasses this whole you know, picture. And I'm like, yeah, wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you beat so, me so. to the punch, Eli. I was going to tell you to, to stop it there as well. Because <laughs> okay. my uh, reformed radar came up as well. Um, well, let me put it this way. I, I find that very odd because, and in one sense, what he's saying is true because the Orthodox Church focuses on this theosis, this idea of divinization, uh, or, or I mean, it's not deification in the sense of, of Mormon exaltation. But, sure. but here's the problem. Here's the problem. He's going from Genesis to Revelation. And in order for us to get to from Genesis to Revelation, you, you need to see what comes in between. Because the fall was also um, necessary for us to understand why we needed the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. You can't talk about the new heaven, the new earth, unless the old earth and the old heaven, something happened, something occurred. And so without mentioning the fall, which is what Paul does, doesn't he? I mean, if you look at Paul's writings to the Romans, what does Paul do? He, he starts in chapter four about justification. And then in chapter five, he says, let me tell you how we got into this mess. You know, right. it's like the old Lord. Remember the old Lord and Hardy, you know, uh, you know, that's a fine mess you got me into. Well, yeah. Paul says, let me tell you how we got into this mess. In Adam, all died. Uh, through Adam, sin entered the world and it went through Moses and, it, and, and therefore all die and are guilty before God. And then Paul builds from that why we needed God to set forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sins to redeem us. God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So it's not just creation all the way to the new, the new creation. It is creation, fall, redemption. And so without speaking about 
why God needs to recreate the heavens and the earth and the new Jerusalem and so forth. The reason right. why he has to do that is because Humpty Dumpty, you know, sat on a wall and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's men and all the king's horses tried to not put him back together again. But only Jesus could do that. Jesus right. put us back together. So the federal headship of Adam in Christ, which is which is so desperately missing in orthodoxy, because to them, they don't believe in original sin. They don't believe that we inherit right. Adamic sin. And so the, the whole idea of Romans 5 with the, the, the headship of Adam, the headship of Christ, the federal representatives of, the, of, these, two, of these two races is lacking in orthodoxy. Mm. And, and again, how can again, how can you claim to be in line with the scriptures, in line with the gospel message, when you deprive this central part of Christ's federal headship over a new people that he has redeemed from their Adamic identification with mm. their forefather? So, um, I mean, what they're basically doing is they're fast tracking to the end. But what about the beauty of the cross, the beauty of the resurrection, the beauty of the God-man, the incarnation? God comes to us in the person of his son. Um, and so what's the point of rushing to the end when we really need to see all of those intermittent events in God's soteriological history, the events of God's salvation, which, which is like an orchestra with a crescendo that is reaching this end with this loud finale? But it's like it's like me listening to Mozart, Eli, and I'm hearing sure. the beginning, and then it ends with, -da! and it's like, mm -hmm, wait a minute, mm -hmm. How did, what about all those pieces in between? How did we get to that? -da! So anyway, That's I just right. found that very incomplete. Yeah, and I think uh, within the Protestant tradition, uh, if you're not if you're not pointing to people who are the extremes where they don't focus on the um, importance of a consistent theology, I've yeah. always understood, and in my experience, the Protestant tradition understanding the importance of this full picture from creation, fall, redemption, right. and glorification. I've never seen, I've never experienced this. You know, uh, you know, we're in a mess and. God comes to save us without any consideration of the, the whole yeah. picture. So I thought that was yeah. kind of a caricature. Yeah. Um, but let us continue on. Sure. Vladimir Lossky put it, uh, if you look at the history of the human race, it's a history of shipwreck awaiting rescue. But as Lossky put it, the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is for the rescued to continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. In other words, to become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, to be yeah, we can stop now, there, Eli. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's not at all. I mean, what he's saying there does, and this has been my. I mean, if you you listen to the discussion, yeah, my biggest thing was a lot of the things that he was saying looked almost exactly like how I would explain it as a Protestant, everything he's yeah. saying there with the, with the exception of his concept of theosis, we wouldn't hold it in the way that the Orthodox, but we don't think that the sale stops at the Harbor of salvation. No. Yeah. There, there's, no. there's more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I was, it's not unique. I was to position. My head. Yeah. I was scratching my head because I was wondering, yeah, I'm, I'm saying amen to everything he's saying. Cause the, the, what he's saying is true. I don't mm -hmm. know any Protestant that contests that, that I, that I know of. So, sure. I don't know. Uh, I think I think that uh, he's preaching to the choir here. Yeah. All right. Let's continue. Infused with the divine nature, and this is precisely uh, what we talk about when we talk about grace. Grace is partaking of the living God. 
And so you can imagine by way of illustration that if you're in a shipwreck and you're saved from the raging waters, you're going to be very, very grateful. But you don't want to stay in the port of salvation. Mm. And in Eastern Orthodoxy, you continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. So there's a sense in which Eastern Orthodoxy is not just punctiliar, it's a process where you go, as Paul put it, from one glory to another glory with unveiled face. So it is a life transformational journey. And so uh, the Orthodox say, uh, I'm saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. And yeah. I'm you can stop being, there too. Yeah. <laughs> well, we agree with him. Amen. Yes. This is yeah, not, this I mean, is not unique to orthodoxy. Yeah. By grace you've been saved, the Ephesians 2 8. We are being saved, 1 Corinthians 1 18. We shall be saved, Romans 5 9. Yeah, we, we understand the three tenses of salvation. You have been, you are being saved, you will be saved. So I don't there's nothing new under the sun here. I mean, we agree with that. Yeah. Uh, now, I guess I, I don't want to read his heart, um, yeah. but I, I I got the impression, and I mean this respectfully, and I, maybe I'm wrong, but I think the way that he is explaining his position is kind of like throwing the bone to the Protestants so that we don't think it's that different. Because surely he'd have to know that there these are not unique features of orthodoxy. I mean, you're that the, there are unique features of orthodoxy. A lot of what he says are not unique features of orthodoxy. And so it seems as though he's focusing on these things where we would probably on a surface level agree and then yeah. every now and then slide in an area where there's a, a distinction there. Do, do you do you see that in the kind of the things that he's saying? Yes. Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, the issue of theosis is not necessarily uh, an objectionable view. I mean, uh, some mm -hmm. of the church fathers uh, use that type of language. And sure. all that means is that you are you are taken up into the life of the triune God. And yes, absolutely, we are in Christ, and we shall see Him as He is, and and we shall we are co heirs uh, with Christ and of His glory. It's and so forth. So while we're using different words, um, what they mean by theosis basically, Eli, is what we mean by glorification. Glorification yes. is is the graduation. It's the it's the last stage. And, and that's when you're in the presence of God. So the, you know, Augustine and the Western fathers called it the beatific vision, where you are mm -hmm. in, in, in wrapped in God's, in the vision of God himself. The, the Eastern mm -hmm. church refers to it as being absorbed into the, the energies of the Trinity. That is the triune God, his life, you're absorbed into his life. There's nothing objectionable to that. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. that to Western ears, theosis sounds uh, a little weird uh yes. because it it we think it means something like becoming god which it does mm. not mean okay all right uh just a reminder to the audience if you have your questions please send them in we'll ad address them towards the end so i would encourage you guys to do that share that um and hopefully we can um get some good questions and have some broader discussion on some of the things that we're covering uh, rather quickly here all right let's continue on being transformed becoming godlike by receiving the graces which are partaken of within the church life. The chief of those graces being, as I just articulated, uh, the Eucharist. 
Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned a term there that I think is uh, pops up in discussions um, with Eastern, Eastern Orthodox folks, the term deification. Why don't you unpack that a little bit in, in a little more detail? What is that in a way that perhaps a Protestant uh, would be helpful for them to understand? Yeah, it, 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 his, his kenosis, we're talking about Christ, mm-hmm. his, his emptying becomes our filling. So when we're talking about deification, we're talking about what Peter talked about when he said we could become partakers of the divine nature or participate in the divine nature. So in orthodoxy, we're not just saved from sin, we're saved for sonship, to become divine sons and daughters of the king. We never become what God is in terms of his essence, but we can partake of his energies and those energies transform us. So by way of an analogy, you can think of the sun. Uh, You can never attain to the center of the sun. Trying so would be deadly, but you can certainly be impacted by the rays of the sun. And in the analogy, God is present in each ray. And those rays transform us. And the whole idea in orthodoxy is... I have a question real quick. Um, sure. He made uh, he spoke about essence and energy. Uh, would a Protestant make those distinctions, or is that something unique to orthodoxy? Because I've always heard that within the context of the orthodox position, these the difference between God's essence and his energies. Yeah, yeah. That, that type of language... Um, is, is language that's very reminiscent of Greek philosophy. Um, you find some of that language in Aristotle, uh, okay. even though the Eastern Church is predominantly Platonic in their view, they're, they're, they're more influenced by Plato. Uh, by the essence, of course, is what makes God God. So ontologically, uh, we will never be like, I mean, we won't become God because our mm-hmm. essence is, is creature and God is creator. Um, but the energies in the Orthodox Church is are, are what we can call the the graces, as he calls them, the graces of God. And, and so our, our, our sanctification, our, our fellowship with God, uh, these they would see as, as his energies, his graces that are uh, given towards us. So in that respect, there's nothing objectionable to that. You know, when Peter okay. says in 2 Peter 1, 3, that we become partakers of the divine nature, the word divine means uh, like God. It doesn't mean to be the same of God. Deity is God divine is godlike and so uh when peter says that we are partakers uh of that divine nature we're partaking partaking of those benefits that god provides for us in christ uh it doesn't mean if i partake of the divine nature i have a divine nature i mean that's like me saying you know it's my birthday eli come on over and and if you partake of my birthday cake you become a birthday cake well no of course not (laughs) you're partaking you're partaking of the cake doesn't make you a cake Right. And so you partake of, of, of the blessings that we have in Christ and, and uh, the, the salvation, uh, the gift of eternal life is something that God imparts to us uh, from, from himself uh, so that we have this eternal fellowship with him. So it's just right. the different wording that, uh, that the Orthodox Church uses. But I think at the, at the end of the day, we would agree with that, just using different terminology. Sure. Uh, I suppose if it was an ice cream cake, I, I wouldn't mind. I love ice cream cake. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, let's continue. <laughs> is to be transformed. So if you look at Eastern Orthodox anthropology, 
God creates man good, but not perfect. Mm. God creates man in such a way that he can ascend up the paradisical mountain and forever eat from the tree of life, which is at the apex of the Edenic garden. Well, man stops halfway up and wants to become a God on his own terms. He's expelled from the garden. So now humanity can no longer partake of the tree of life. But God has set another tree of life on the fulcrum of history. And that tree of life bears the Eucharistic bounty. It is the cross. And it is through Jesus Christ that the triple barrier that separates us from God is broken. The barrier of nature by the incarnation of Christ, the barrier of sin by the death of Christ, and the barrier of death itself by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the whole idea between or in, in the system of orthodoxy is becoming not only what we're created as an icon of God, but becoming more and more godlike by partaking of the energies of God. And maybe you can use another word for that, the graces that God dispenses within the ground and the pillar of truth, which is the church, the center now, of the universe and orthodoxy. Now, I have heard this often, and I don't know um, the terminology, essence and energy. I've often been asked about the essence and energy distinction. What, what is that specifically within an Eastern Orthodox context? I, I've heard it. You've alluded to it. Um, but uh, what is it exactly? Well, yeah, we, we, it's what I was talking about before, Eli. You can never attain to the essence of God. God is unknowable okay. in his essence. But he is knowable in his energies. And it is those energies that are the graces that we're talking about. So we believe that we're saved by God's grace. Just real real quick, uh, Dr. Costa, when he speaks mm -hmm. about the essence, would that be what we would refer to within the West as the incomprehensibility of God? Well, the incomprehensibility of God would be one of his attributes. The, the essence is what makes God, God. God is spirit. And, okay. and and those attributes do communicate, uh, uh, those incommunicable attributes uh, that only God has, like, as you okay. said, the incomprehensibility, immutability, infinity, uh, omnipotence, uh, omnipresence, all these things sure. are part of God's uh, unique essence in the sense that we can never be that. You and I will mm -hmm. never be immutable or uh, uh, incomprehensible. You will never be omnipresent and so forth. So sure. so that that's what he means by that, yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the Orthodox Church is not a works-centered theology. Say, um, say, that again. say that again. I'm sorry. It's, it's not a works-centered theology. Uh, All right. Let's stop there because yeah. that uh, that caught my ear. Uh, I heard what he said, but I wanted to make sure I heard him correctly. And yeah. perhaps you can—I mean, he's going to explain, uh, but what? Uh, would you take issue with that specific— um, Terminology. I mean, they yeah, wouldn't I, say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would say that you'll notice that the Roman Catholic Church will tell you we are saved by God's grace. It's in the Council of Trent. Uh, the Orthodox Church will tell you absolutely we're saved by God's grace. But here's where the Reformation really was a game changer. 
Okay. Reformation said it's sola gratia. It's grace alone. And therefore, the Orthodox Church will not tell you that it's grace alone. That's why they really need James chapter 2. We can look at that. I think they're taking that out of context in a terrible way. But you will never, they, you will never hear them say we are saved by grace alone. Mm -hmm. They will say grace, to be sure. But you'll never hear the, 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 the official position of the Orthodox Church is that it's grace but it's participation in, in the mysteries where you can gain access to the energies of God. Uh, okay. So that, that does not communicate uh, grace alone, sufficiency right. of grace. So, so an Orthodox wouldn't say we're saved by uh, faith and works, but would you say, or maybe they would, I don't know, but it, perhaps if they don't say that, we would say that the implications of their theology is that there is works being inserted in there and here's where the issue is. Right. So it's not faith alone. It's not grace alone. Uh, and it's not, uh, again, they deny sola scriptura. They deny uh, the idea that Christ alone, they will say Christ alone, but they believe that that he can be accessed through the intercession of his mother and through the saints and so forth. So uh, okay. the church to them is necessary for salvation. Okay. All right. Uh, so, so I mean, the, you, you have to get over the language barrier here because the language of the Orthodox and the language of the the Western Church, the Roman Catholics, and 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 the Protestants, is very, very different language. Mm -hmm. So, oftentimes, you have to uh, learn to scale the language barrier there. But uh, the the Orthodox, uh, I mean, if you look at the Orthodox Study Bible uh, at Ephesians chapter two, um, you know, the the great passage for by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you look at all three of those verses, uh, verses, you see grace, faith, and works. But here's what the Orthodox Study Bible says. How can one get from one kingdom to the other? By the unity of grace, faith, and works. Not that these are equal, for grace is uncreated and infinite, whereas our faith is limited and can grow. Good works flow out of authentic faith. Works, however, cannot earn us this great treasure. It is a pure gift. And those who receive this gift do good. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. See, right, there, you look, right there, if I could, I could interject yeah. there, that sounds very protestant-ish i mean i i mean i i hold to the doctrine of justification by faith alone and i often say that i'm not good i'm not saved by my good works but a good works is the good works that i that i do are evidence of a genuine faith um so yeah. what is what is the um and i apologize if this question kind of throws off uh throws you off track as to your line of no no you're not throwing me off track there, is that um what is the position then of the eastern orthodox perspective on the doctrine of justification by faith alone because what we hear from Roman Catholics, what we hear from Eastern Orthodoxy sounds like a works-based system, even though they don't flat out say, yes, we're saved by our works. It seems that it is the implications of the perspective. Uh, but what, what's your stance on justification by faith alone? What's the Eastern Orthodox stance on justification by faith alone? Well, it, it, exactly what I just said and read. You know, I, I was just, just going to say in this regard. Okay, I want to stop right yeah. there. It's just again. This is this is where I was confused mm -hmm. because he he could have just said 
No, we don't hold to justification by faith alone because yeah. I, I asked that question yeah. knowing that they, they don't hold to it. However, yeah, that's why, yeah, yeah. He said, well, it was what I just said. And what did he just say when he read from his Orthodox study Bible is that we're not saved by works. Right. That's that's not really what I'm asking is I'm, I'm asking is what role does the works play in the yes. whole thing and whether or not that the salvation by works is an implication of that. And I think right. he's now trying to sound very Protestant. <laughs> yeah, well, well, he didn't affirm your statement of justification by faith alone. Mm -hmm. See, that's the point here is, is they, he cannot say that because the moment you say that, then justification is a work of God uh, separate from anything you can do. And, and it's forensic as well. Uh, this mm -hmm. is where the Orthodox church is lacking tremendously is that they don't focus on the forensic uh, perspective of justification, which involves God's uh, declaration of, of a sinner being not guilty. Uh, sure. And so, so the doctrine of justification by faith alone is is virtually lacking in the Orthodox Church. Mm. All right, let's let's let him finish here. If you if you turn to James chapter uh, two, okay, um, James parses it out very very well. And in essence, what James is saying is we have to nurture our faith in God, nurture our love for Him through through our works, and that's why James says that um, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead, says James. Right. And then he uses Rahab and Abraham uh, to illustrate why faith without works is dead. So the kind of faith uh, that we're talking about here and, and I'm not distinguishing this from, from you in any sense, but the kind of faith we're talking about is the faith of Abraham. I mean, Abraham's faith was not mere intellectual assent. Sure. Uh, Abraham trusted God. So it wasn't just hearing and saying, I believe, but Abraham packed up his tents, left Ur the Chaldees, and went to a land he did not know anything about. Sure. He trusted God. So faith is trusting. It's not only knowing and agreeing, but it is putting your whole trust in God. And that's why James can say faith without works is dead. And then say that Abram was called a friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works as James and not by faith alone. Mm -hmm. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now, in the Western church, there's a big debate between uh, the Roman Catholics and the evangelicals or the reformers and Rome, uh, because the whole idea of justification is understood in juridical terms. Mm -hmm. That debate is not the same debate that the Eastern Orthodox are involved in. They were never okay, involved let's, let's in there. any of this. There we go. The, we, we're on the same that? wavelength. Did you catch that? I think if we're catching the same thing, here's what I was trying. Here's what popped in my mind that made my antennas go up, and maybe yours was something different. But what the Orthodox tries to do, and I hear this often, is remove themselves from the debate because geographically they weren't there. However, for me, that does not alleviate their position of answering the same issues that are brought up. 
when we talk about the sufficiency of grace, right. the, right. you know, all these other things. So just because they weren't involved in the Reformation dispute between Protestants and Catholics doesn't mean that the implications of their theology have no bearing on the question. Right. I don't know if that's right. where you were going, but yeah, that's it, where my... It, it's that, but it's also the fact that he says the whole issue of justification as this having judicial bearing, this idea of the judicial context mm -hmm. of justification is, is not something that the Orthodox talk about. That's the point. The point is that justification in its in its uh, in its lexical context, the word decayo is a forensic term, and mm -hmm. and Paul uses it in the context of penalty for sin and the wages of sin is death, and by grace, uh, by, uh, we have been justified by faith in Christ, and we have peace with God, and so the whole language Paul uses about peace, like a peace bond with God, and. And we've been justified by faith. This is this is judicial language. And for so, him so to what, say, yeah, go so ahead. what? So let me get this straight. So what you're saying is, when he says the Orthodox doesn't speak about it in those terms like you guys do, and you're saying yeah. that's a problem because that's, that's the language problem. of Scripture. <laughs> okay. That's what brought the Reformation as well. The whole okay. point of the just shall live by faith. And so the whole point here is, why is this not an issue? Why is this not even? talked about in the Orthodox Church. But you cannot read the book of Romans and not be struck by this. It is so central to Paul's argumentation, and in Galatians as well. No one's justified by the works of the law. Sure. And, and, and so the fact that he openly admits that, I think, is, is, is a gaping problem here. Uh, because why is this not being discussed in the Orthodox Church when it's so central to the gospel? If you can speculate, why do you think it has not been the center of discussion within Eastern Orthodox context? Because to them, it's all about, again, from creation all the way, you do that big jump uh, into the, mm -hmm. the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth. So to them, everything in the Orthodox Church is about uh, theosis. It's all about becoming uh, united with God, becoming mystically united with God. So mm -hmm. they're not interested in this the judicial aspects of God's law. Everything is about that you go to the church, you receive the mysteries, and you're being transformed, as he said, from glory to glory. You're being transformed. And so the idea there is not about confessing your sin, repenting of sin, recognizing your need for a savior. That's not what it is. You've received all of that at baptism. And all you're doing now is you're growing in that process. So in their view, at baptism, that child becomes a child of God. A baby but becomes a child of God. Don't the Orthodox engage in confession and repentance, though? Wouldn't they, they do. say they do? Okay, so so they when do. you say when you say they're focusing more on the process, you're not saying that they don't do those other things. No. There's just not a heavy emphasis upon them. Correct, and and it's not okay. even part of their theology. It's not part of their theology, and mm -hmm. and it just really, really, um, it, it really calls into question the importance of Scripture. Because you cannot read Romans again without coming away with the sense of, of God's judicial act in, in, in justifying sinners by faith, which is huge. Mm. Okay. All right, let's continue. They never juxtaposition faith and works one against the other. It was a foreign thought to them. But I don't think it's the Protestant view that they're pitted against each other. If No, no, I'm saying the Protestants and the Reformers 
or Rome and the reformers were pitted against each other in a debate on how faith relates to works. And right. I'm saying that in the Eastern Church, there was never, ever a juxtaposition of one against the other. It was simply understood from a biblical perspective. Well, I mean, well, that would be the point of, of contention, if that is, uh, because what you're saying, what I heard you say, if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds very much, um, <laughs> someone in the comment, why am I still a Calvinist? <laughs> People in the comment section. Um, the, the question uh, that that I'm wondering is, what you were saying with regards to James chapter 2, I, as a Protestant, I'm saying yes and amen. I don't, I don't see the distinction between the Protestant understanding uh, and the Eastern Orthodox understanding based upon what you said. In your estimation, then, what differentiates? I mean, I, I agree with James that um, you're not justified by faith uh, um, alone, but you know he, he kind of brings the distinction with, with, with works there. Protestants have a paradigm for understanding that. I'm not sure I have distinguished your thoughts on that from the Protestant view, because a lot of what you said, if I'm understanding you correctly, I can say, sure, I have no problem with that as a, as a, um, as a Protestant. You understand my question? I do, and it's a good question, and I think this is a, a really difficult thing to parse out unless you understand an overall framework, sure. and that's what I've been trying to communicate. You have to understand a whole overall framework, and you have to be able to scale the language barrier, and you have to understand what salvation is. Mm -hmm. uh, salvation, as I said earlier, is not just being saved from sin, but it's being saved for sonship. Uh, so you have to look at the larger framework. See, right there, Dr. Costa, mm -hmm. I agree with that. He yeah. still, this is, this is what was a little frustrating. In answering my questions, he's still not saying anything that's different than the Protestant perspective. And, mm -hmm. and someone, someone might say, well, maybe that's a point of agreement. But I know it's not. We don't have the same understanding of, mm -hmm. so I was very confused at this point. Yeah, well, also, James chapter 2, you know, James is talking about genuine faith versus uh, counterfeit faith, right? Remember in, in 2.14, he says, uh, he says here very quickly, he says, uh, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? That's the point. Can that type of faith, the faith that doesn't produce works? And the answer is no, it can't. And, and right. again, the justification that James is talking about is not the same justification that Paul talks about. Paul's talking about justification with God, before God. Because right. God sees the heart and, and God declared Abraham to be righteous and just. James is talking about justification before men. And that's why in chapter 2 he begins with this idea of someone comes into your assembly and you make the poor sit at the back. Are you acting justly? In other words, the way we act before people, how will they see our faith unless they see our faith in action? And so in the case of Abraham, God already justified him before he was circumcised. God already justified him before he took Isaac up to the mount to, to offer him up. But he was justified by his works when we look at him and we see Abraham taking his son and he takes that dagger and he's ready to plunge it into the chest of his son and we go, Oh my goodness, he was actually going to pull it through. He was actually going to go all the way. So from God's point of view, he already knew Abraham would pass the test. But what James is saying is, look, we are justified by works before men, not before God. And isn't that what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5? Let your light shine before men that they may do what? That 
they may see your good works and praise your father who is in heaven. And so James is not talking about justification by faith before God. It's justification by works before men. Hmm. Totally different category. All right. Okay. Sorry about that. I'm clicking through to see if we could. Uh, all right. Let's let's begin here. Let's try to take bigger chunks or we'll never finish. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Creation to deification. So the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is for the saved to continue on a journey. So when we talk about salvation, we're not talking about it in punctiliar terms. We're talking about it as a process. Now, it is true that when an Orthodox person is baptized or when a person is baptized as an Orthodox Christian, uh, they have renounced the world. They've renounced the devil and his kingdom. And then they're baptized and they enter into a life of repentance. At baptism, they're forgiven, they're washed, they're cleansed, they're united with Christ, they're incorporated into the church, and their temple becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there is a point in time, or there is a sense of a punctiliar nature to Orthodox salvation, but then you begin a process. And that process always takes place within a context, and that context is the church. And that's why the Orthodox say, uh, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother, because it is in the church that you receive the graces that transform you. So it isn't just this idea of fall to redemption. It is the broader arch that I was talking about earlier from creation to deification. And that's an ongoing process, meaning that you will never come to an end of that process, either in this life or in the life that is to come. In eternity, we will continue to grow in the graces. Now, we are going to learn and grow and develop, albeit without error, but we're never going to be static. We're going to continue to become more and more like God. Again, not like God in his essence. We're not talking sure. about Mormonism. Sure. We're, we're not talking about Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Uh, we're not talking about aberrations. Uh, we're not talking about Kenneth Copeland. Uh, but we're talking about the energies of God as opposed to the essence of God. So let, let me give you an illustration that the early church once I do for sure. I do yeah. um so so but what you're saying there sounds a lot to me like sanctification. Again, the language that you're using sounds very that's a brilliant observation. That I, it, truly a brilliant observation because here, here's the problem and you just put your finger right on it. Uh, the language systems oftentimes encompass many of the same ideologies. It's different language, but the language is driving at some of the same points. And that's why I said earlier on, Eli, you have to learn to scale the language barrier because the language of the East is very different from the language of the West. Um, you know, the, the language of the East is more Christ victor. Mm -hmm. uh, the language of the West is more Christ victim. Not okay, let's let's uh, stop there, Eli. <laughs> <completely> so, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you see my face. My face uh, yeah. winced a little. <laughs> that's 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 yeah. That's a false dichotomy because yes, yeah. Of course, Christ is victor. Yes, but he he's also the victim because he becomes the Lamb of God. Uh, sure. But at the same time, he is the priest and he's the offering at the same time. So right. the, that's that is a false dichotomy. The the Western Church believed that Christ was also victor, Christus victor, 
And they also believe that he was uh, the victim. So that is not necessarily true. That that really is a false dichotomy that that hangs. And, and I think it presents it presents the Protestant position inappropriately as just being imbalanced. And of course, yeah. the imbalance is is attributed to the lack of an overarching tradition that can guide yeah. us, right? Yeah. So it's all all connected there as part of the argumentation. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. But but in terms of emphasis, the emphasis in the Eastern Church is that sin is a sickness, and there's a cure for the sickness. The language, as you know, in the Western Church is far different from that. So I, I think we can stop there, Eli. How if you don't important mind. it is to scale the okay. Uh, yeah, the, the the belief that sin is a sickness. Uh, Jeremiah seventy nine: the heart is incurably sick. Mm -hmm. Who can know it? Of course, we know it's sick. Um, so again, false, false dichotomy. I think he's making a hasty generalization that simply is not true. Okay. The language barrier, and, and, and I think a brilliant response on your part is that, yeah, I mean, uh, the Protestants talk about justification, but that's not all they talk about. They also talk about sanctification. I think that's a, a yeah. very appropriate comment. I guess um, you, I would 100% agree that we we do need to scale the language barrier. By the way, a little commercial for those who've never read uh, Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. There's an entire section on scaling the language barrier, and that's not just in relation to the cults. That's in relation to any kind of communication where people are coming from different perspectives. So there is definitely a language barrier to be crossed to sh for sure. And, um, and by the way, you mentioned Walter Martin. Walter Martin believed that the Roman Catholic Church was a true church. That's right. With significant error. Right. And, uh, and I, I would agree with that. Right. And uh, with all due respect, Walter Martin was incorrect. And I say that with, with great respect for Dr. Martin. Yeah. That would be a point of disagreement there. And I think he would say the same thing about the Orthodox Church, that it is mm -hmm. a true church with significant error. That's right. And so it, it goes, it cuts both ways. That's right. Right. And I, I disagreed with his position there. Uh, but again, that's just a distinction uh, between um, between myself and, and uh, yourself and, and Dr. Martin. Um, but... <sighs> When you speak of the fall and redemption, but that it goes back to creation and deification, um, and it seems to suggest that that is the position and emphasis of the Western church, I guess then we have to be more distinct with regards to what we mean by the Western church, because a lot of the ways that you have just in passing, I mean, you're just, you were having a conversation here, so I'm sure <clears throat> precision could be, uh, there can be more precision in what you're saying. Um, but I've never heard the, the Western emphasis that, that you have described as something within the reformed context. So I've never heard from fall to redemption. I, I hear from creation, right at, the, right at the beginning, God has a decree. He has plans to make a covenant. It's unfolding. You know, the process of salvation, the issue of justification and sanctification. Um, I believe those. Well, Eli, things. I was trying to be precise because, I, yeah. you know, what, 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 I, what, what I'm saying is it has to do with Eastern Orthodox anthropology. I, I, I don't sure. in any way uh, sure. dismiss or, 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 or minimize the fact that, um, sure. that, that the Protestant faith uh, understands the Bible from creation. Uh, to glorification, okay. I, I, I'm not diminishing that in any Good. sense. Yeah, I just want to click because I was like, well, I don't know yeah. if I would if I would phrase it that way. So, so okay, so let's let's get down to the let's use the language of of the debates so that people understand. I mean, Protestants think in these categories of justification by faith alone. You know, the solas of the Reformation and things like that. Does the Eastern Eastern Orthodox perspective reject a Protestant understanding of justification by faith alone? Yeah, again, for the reasons that we talked about. Uh, I mean, we 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 believe that we're saved by God's grace. Mm -hmm. Um, the emphasis is on, on, on God's grace. So the category. Um, there's stuff we can say there. There's a yeah. subtlety there. Yeah. Everyone, everyone believes Protestant 
Orthodox, Catholic, everyone believes that God's grace is necessary. Everyone agrees. But where is the disagreement, Dr. Yeah, Cochran? yeah, yeah. Is it sufficient? There we is go. Is it grace alone? And that's not what we're hearing. So the, is it sufficient or is it efficient? Of course, it's efficient. Of course, it's necessary. But is it sufficient? And that's mm -hmm. not the answer the Orthodox Church will give us. That's right. Okay. Stories, again, are important if you make the proper distinctions in terms of the language that you're using. So we, we, we believe exactly what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says. We're saved by God's grace. We receive that grace through faith, faith properly understood. Mm -hmm. And the salvation uh, that we embrace is progressive. There's a point in time where we experience salvation, but there's also a progressive sense of salvation. And that's, as I said before, why the Orthodox say you're not only saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. See, but is that a distinctive of Eastern Orthodoxy? I've always, I've always understood there is a sense of a now and not yet aspect to the salvation process. So I'm having well, to. Well, that's a good point. There are a lot of Protestants that hold that. Good point. Right. So, so yeah, I, uh, point well taken. But there are a lot of Protestants too that do not hold that. So there's a popular form of Protestantism in which you get people to pray a prayer, sure, and then they have a card that gets them into heaven and keeps them. See, let's stop right there. That's not. That's not a popular form of Protestantism. That's just false doctrine. Yeah. Right. I, I, right? I mean, now, now you're melding in, okay, well, there's Protestant yeah. distinctives, yeah. and then there yeah. are these wha wackos a, who think yeah. you get a... Okay. It's a straw man. It's a straw man <laughs> okay. argument, really. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's continue here. Keeps them out of hell, and they can live as a baptized secular humanist, uh, right. Because they have been saved, once saved, always saved. They've been saved, and but, therefore, I, but but if I can just jump in there, sure. Um, yep. And I agree with you. There are aspects of Protestantism that reflects that, but that's not an essential feature of Protestant theology. Those are, I would say, aberrations of a consistent Protestant um, perspective. So what I guess, well, and, and and but but that's a good point. And let me uh, before you get to your question, let, let, let me point that out. I I think this is part of where the problem lies. Uh, there, you, you say you reject Eastern Orthodoxy, but maybe what you're rejecting is a caricature. Of Eastern Orthodoxy. And when people uh, have arguments with respect to Protestantism, maybe in some cases they're caricaturing Protestantism as opposed to correctly parsing it. Now, yeah. now I think Which he makes he just a good did. Yeah. Yes, yes. I think he makes a good a good point there. We can wrongfully reject Correct. an aspect of a theology and because we don't understand it. However, notice that my question that could easily be answered with a yes or no and then an expansion. Yeah. of whether yeah. you reject justification by faith alone. He rejects mm -hmm. it, but he hasn't yeah. clearly just come out and say no, and the language he's right. using sounds like, well, okay, it kind of sounds like what I'm saying anyway. So there's an ambiguity there that would yeah. be very helpful if he just flat yes. out said, I reject it, here's my position. Right, right. Okay. All right, let's continue here. Uh, by the way, for those watching, um, I appreciate you guys watching. If you, I'm going to say it again. If you have any questions, please type them out in the comments and we'll get to them towards the end. Um, I think we are making somewhat good time here, um, but we're going to give a little longer gaps of listening and then interject. So we'll try to keep our, our words short so we can finish. But um, if you have questions, please send them in. Right. And I, d I definitely think that that happens. And I think that's why conversations like this are, are so helpful. Um, but at the same time, some of your explanations, even as you're kind of explaining your view, I don't see a distinct difference 
except for a couple of things you said, between the Protestant view and the Eastern Orthodox view, and so I'm having difficulty identifying what is unique to Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, and I think that we don't agree. We are, we are going to disagree on issues of justification. So I know they're not the same, but what you're saying sounds very uh, Protestant-ish, kind of. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I think you have to go back to what we were talking about earlier on in the conversation. Uh, I think it's really important to, uh, to consider what the church was when the church was young, because there are all kinds of varieties of Protestantism. Uh, from, from, from the time of the Great Schism that took place in the West between Rome and the Reformers, uh, the, uh, <laughs> what happened within Protestantism is, is, is mind-blowing. Uh, I mean, Luther could not imagine what Zwingli would end up saying, believing, and teaching. I mean, you know that. And then Zwingli could not believe later permutations of the Protestant Reformation. And today, one of the big problems from my perspective, and, and quite frankly, one of the reasons I wanted to go to where the church was young, i.e. Eastern Orthodoxy, is because of all the winds and waves of doctrine that keep sweeping through. Well, here we go. Yeah. Here is the classic Roman yeah. Catholic position yeah. in more yeah. in more respectful. I, I appreciate the way he presented mm -hmm. it, but mm -hmm. look at how many denominations yeah. there are. Yeah. There's just chaos, yeah. and that is the fruit of sola scriptura and Protestant theology. So let me ask you, Dr. Costa, Okay, we'll move, we'll move, try to move as quickly as we can. Sure. Um, if the Protestant position is correct, of course, we allow some non-essential disagreements within various traditions. Why are there so many uh, denominations? Yeah, I mean, we have these various denominations, but these denominations are born out of disagreements on a diaphora. The, these are issues that are negotiable. So, I mean, he brings up the issue of the Eucharist, uh, the Lord's Supper with Luther and Zwingli. But what Luther ended up teaching was that in order to justify that Christ was truly present in the elements of the Lord's Supper, Luther had to argue for the ubiquity of Christ's body. Now, you need to understand what that means, what that implies. I mean, that implies that Christ's body is omnipresent. Now there's a problem and Calvin fought back against that because what Calvin is saying is that's a denial of the hypostatic union of Christ, that Christ has a true human nature and that human nature is finite. It is glorified, immortal, but it's finite. His body cannot be everywhere at the same time. You would need that if you believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation. So these different denominations have arisen not through disagreements on the Trinity, not disagreements on the deity of Christ, but disagreements on secondary issues. And so that is not an argument to say, well, that just shows that uh, because we have all these different denominations, I mean, I could still have fellowship with a Presbyterian brother. I can have fellowship with a Lutheran brother. I can have fellowship with a Baptist brother. If they trust Christ alone for their salvation, and they hold to the creeds, the, the Apostles' Creed, the, the creeds of orthodoxy and so forth, we're on the same page. Um, but even in the Orthodox Church, I mean, there is, you, you have the, the Byzantine liturgy, and then you've got these churches like the Ukrainian, uh, the, the Ukrainian, uh, the Polish Ukrainian, uh, excuse me, Polish Unite churches that are churches that are in union with Rome. They're not in union with the Patriarch of Constantinople. And so this argument about, well, this is when the church was young and 
and this is what I'm going to do. This is the same argument Roman Catholic apologists use for why they've gone into the Roman church. Scott Hahn uses this argument all the time. But once again, at the end of the day, we're not talking about, you know, I can trace this denomination so far back. What we're, what we're asking is, are these churches in line and in harmony with the teachings of Holy Scripture? Because mm -hmm. I'm hearing a lot about when the church was young, when the church was young, and this is the oldest church. I'm hearing very little about what 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 are the biblical earmarks of a Christian church. Mm -hmm. um, so again, there there is division even within the churches of the East. You've got the Coptic church, which the Orthodox would say, oh, Copts are heretical because they deny the Council of Chalcedon. And the, and the Roman church is heretical for the filioque uh, insertion into the Nicene Creed and so forth. So what are you saying about the Protestant churches in Rome? The Roman church is saying about the Orthodox church. They're saying the same thing. They're the heretics who broke off from us. So again, at the end of the day, I think that our, our standard should be Holy Scripture. Amen. And I think with the reformers, we need to get back to the fountains, back to the sources. And that's Holy Scripture. All right. Very good. We're actually making good time. It looks like good. in the video, we're almost, we probably have like a little bit over 10 minutes left and then sure. we'll take questions. So there's some questions sure. coming in, um, I think are important to address. So, sure. um, and I, yes, um, I do know there are people who are asking, uh, whether Hank is the best representative uh, to have on Eastern Orthodoxy. And we um, have discussed this already. He admittedly says he's not the best resource, um, uh, but I'll address that during the Q&A. We'll, we'll talk about what I'm hoping for in the future. So um, we'll get to that later. But for now, let's, uh, let's press on. The Protestant evangelical world. I mean, I remember not long ago when I was really disillusioned with evangelicalism, there were major voices in the evangelical Christian world with big, big platforms saying, that you should never ask God for forgiveness. To ask God for forgiveness is like spitting in the face of God. So you have this wind and wave that moves through the church. And, and, and that's what I'm talking you, uh, about. You keep having more and more permutations that muddy the water. But and I, so you can't see the bottom anymore. So I'm simply saying that Eastern Orthodoxy is going to, when the church was young, and one of the primary issues for me is the Eucharist. When I partake of the Eucharist, I'm partaking of the real presence of Christ. And that is a distinct sure. difference from what you find within uh, Protestantism. Yes. And I do think that, that that's an important difference there. Um, but um, a lot of these waves that you say are going in through the um, the Orthodox Church, I'm sorry, the Evangelical Church, again, those are aberrations that can be yes. corrected with proper biblical application. So though, again, that's not an, an essential feature of Protestantism. You have Well, it is in the sense that everyone becomes their own pope. I mean, everyone becomes their own interpreter. All right. All right. We yeah. got to stop. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. it's, the, it's the same old argument that, uh, I, I, and again, this, this stems out of the view that, that, there, that no one is a private interpreter of the Bible, that the church interprets the Bible. So the undercurrent here is, once again, it's sole ecclesia. It's church alone. And, and the idea here is that, oh, you can, you can just be your own pope. Again, that is, that is just so um, hasty. That is, that is such a, a, a straw man that, that Hank is, 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 is presenting here. I mean, when, when you study your Bible, uh, uh, Eli, I'm sure that you, you ask God for illumination, you ask God for direction, you look at the context, you wanna do a proper exegesis and hermeneutics. The Bible isn't just some 
some uh, putty that you take into your hand and you just conform it to whatever you'd like. I mean, the Protestant churches also have confessions. We also have confessions that we stand by. And if you don't abide by those confessions, then the church has the authority to expel you or to, to, dis, to excommunicate you. So it's just a, such a simplistic explanation that Hank is giving there that, that Protestants are just people that get together. It's just me and my Bible under a cherry tree. And I'm just going to come to my own conclusion about what it says. That is so simplistic. And it really is a straw man. It really is. Now, now we don't have to expand on this because of time, yeah. but uh, people want to make a distinction between sola scriptura and solo yeah. scriptura. Right. And it is often right. foisted upon the Protestant position that we are solo scriptura no. is, no. and we're not. There's a difference no, between solo not. and sola. And if you're That's interested right. in that difference, you can look it up. We, we're not going to go into it right now, but it's an right. important distinction. Yeah. Okay. And so you have people that are going to the same Bible and they're interpreting the text in different ways and starting whole movements around their own interpretations. Mm -hmm. This is why I mentioned Zwingli, but you could mention many other people as well. I'm trying not to be confrontational. Yeah, yeah. We, we can I, stop I, there program. as well. I mean, you could go to many okay. other. I mean, look, yeah. so, determinism for me is so, a... So you see, you see, Eli, the whole point is um, everyone comes up with their own interpretation. Okay, which interpretation is correct? It's what the Orthodox Church says. So at the end of the day, we're back to sola ecclesia. The mm -hmm. church determines what the Bible says. The Roman right. church determines what the Bible says. The Mormon church determines what the Bible says. So at the end of the day, he is a subject of the church. He obeys mm -hmm. whatever the church says. So right. he's not even an interpreter of scripture. Hank can't even understand the Bible by himself. He needs the church to guide him. And so that is no different than what I see in the Mormon church, the watchtower. It's the same ideology. Mm -hmm. And you can't say, well, we have the pedigree because who gets to interpret what constitutes the a valid pedigree? Exactly. You got the Mormon exactly. saying, well, the divine prophet tells us yeah. that there was a great apostasy. So we can't right. trust what you claim is. A, so you're going to have to get to the issue of, of authority exactly. at some point. Exactly. All right. A huge issue. I grew up in a Calvinist context, and hard determinism for me was a, a, a huge issue. I actually left the church as a very young boy for a long, long time because I couldn't handle the idea of hard determinism. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it just seemed incredible to me to have a then become a soft determinist. <laughs> yeah, but but then but then this idea of hard determinism, I mean, God's sovereign right to be God. And God's sovereign right to decree the end from the beginning is hard determinism. I mean, that doesn't speak of someone who the scripture says obeys God and loves the Lord his God and so forth. The only people that oppose God's uh, decrees are unregenerate people. I mean, Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? So hard determinism, if he's talking about fatal determinism in a philosophical context, I could see where he's going. But to speak of the God of the Bible as a hard determinist, mm -hmm. that, again, that, that I think is a theological straw man. That's right. And hard determinism is not an essential feature of the Reformed tradition. You have a wide variety no. of perspectives. No. So I don't, yeah. I don't see why that would cause him to leave yeah. if you have other yeah. options. But let's yeah. uh, press on. I have a sense of theistic fatalism that I heard over and over again in the church that I was part of. And when I asked questions, I didn't get satisfying answers, so I left the church. Well, I found out that becoming a practicing atheist didn't help the 
the situation much because if uh, Madonna is merely a material girl living in a material world, her choices are not free. They're fatalistically <laughs> determined by brain genetic genetics. So I, I didn't advance the ball a whole lot, but it took me away from the church for a long period of time. So there's this whole issue of robust uh, libertarian freedom as opposed to hard determinism. This is a major issue uh, that, that separates uh, the Orthodox from many strains within the Protestant world as well. So there are many things, you know, for example, the filioque. That's a huge issue because it gets down to the nature of God himself, and virtually every single theological heresy begins with a misconception of the nature of God. So there are big issues to be contended with. All right. Well, we are coming up to the hour, and so I want to give an opportunity for some of the listeners to maybe ask their questions. There's okay. so much here to unpack. There's a lot that I probably would have pressed back on. Uh, we have points of disagreement. Well, you know what? You can do it because, uh, first of all, i got to commend you. You are exactly as advertised. I've never met you before. I only heard about you, and what I heard about you is true. Uh, we had a conversation. You pushed back appropriately. All right, I'm going to stop there. And I do appreciate um, uh, Hank's compliments there. I thought it was a good conversation. Um, we weren't yelling or fighting over, uh, you know, our positions. I was trying my best to listen to where he was coming from. And uh, we had respectful disagreement. And I hope that that models something for everyone else um, uh, watching. You don't have to make your point by just screaming heretic and bloody murder and yelling at each other. So there are ways to have respectful conversations. But I'm going to stop there and um, uh, move to the audience uh, questions because at that point, we he takes some questions and, and that's really not the gist of the... the um, of what we wanted to critique here. So let me, um, I'm going to look for a question. Is there anything you want to say with regards to anything he said towards the end there while I kind of scroll down and find a, a question? No, I think we've pretty much uh, discussed uh, his major points. Okay. All right, yeah. good. So let's see here. Uh, this Well, this is interesting. Uh, there's a comment here. Uh, someone says, I was once EO and I know most of them know nothing about the Bible. Now, again, no. that's in this person's experience, but uh, mm -hmm. th that says something. Dif churches don't yeah. always. That's right. And a lot of these Orthodox churches are also very cultural. So I know a lot of folk. I know folks in the Greek Orthodox Church and to them, it's the Greek Church. It's the Greek Church. It's a cultural mm -hmm. Greek Church. And so same with the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, or, or if you watch Seinfeld when George was trying to convert to the Latvian Orthodox Church, and and so there are some of these churches become almost cultural churches where people just believe, well, if you're Greek, you should be a Greek Orthodox right, uh, member. Right. So my experience has shown that many of them don't know uh, don't know the Bible. Not to say there aren't any, but a lot of them uh, don't know the Bible. Why? Well, I mean, if you go to the church, you participate in the in the in the energies of God and so forth. The church will take care of you. The church is the one that will take care of you and uh, and guide you along the way. And so Bible reading to me, uh, in terms of, of the Orthodox, is not something that is primary on their schedule. Okay. Um, Marvin asks, where do their veneration of icons come from? I know it isn't from the gospel, so I guess he gives the idea that he doesn't see it in scripture. Yeah. So where does it come yeah. from? Yeah, well, it, it, there's a, there was a huge fight in the early church, uh, the, the, the iconoclasts. Uh, there were church councils that were held. There was a council in Constantinople uh, in the, the, the mid to late 50s, 500s rather, uh, mid 50 to late 590s, where there was a council that, that condemned the use of icons and any representations of God or Christ and so forth. In the second council of Nicaea, 787 AD, they 
they overturned that council and basically said it was okay to venerate icons because mm -hmm. uh, John of Damascus, who was considered a saint in the Orthodox Church, argued that in the incarnation, God basically divinized matter. He blessed matter in the incarnation. And therefore, it's perfectly fine to venerate icons or pictures of Christ and Mary and the saints. They, they make a distinction between the word uh, latria and dulia. And latria means the worship of God. And dulia, they say, is a form of veneration. Here's the problem. The Bible never uses those types of categorical distinctions. In the Bible, latria, dulia, proscuneo, uh, sebezomai, uh, treskia, all of these words are all related to the worship of God. That's one of the things I covered in my book on the worship uh, worship in the risen Jesus, the Pauline letters. So uh, uh, the reason why they, 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 they allow that is they say veneration is not worship. Okay. And so they'll pray to Mary, but that's not worship. That's veneration. Even mm -hmm. though the actions are exactly the same as the worship of God. So, so it develops out of this idea, uh, at least by the time you come to the uh, fifth century, this stuff is really beginning to pile up. But there was a there was a huge dispute among Christians about the use of icons, and uh, there were iconoclasts, and they quoted Romans one, Exodus twenty against the icons. Okay, very good. Uh, here's a question: So, can Doctor Costa bottom line bottom line it and say if he views the Orthodox as our brethren, or are the differences too vast? Yeah, they're they're not our brethren in Christ. Uh, I believe they are like the Roman Church and Apostate Church. They can't be in Christ if they don't believe the gospel of grace. If they believe the church is going to save them, the church is the center of the universe. That is very different than what we read in Holy Scripture. So are they brethren in Adam? Yes, they're brethren in Adam, but I want to see them become brethren in Christ. Uh, so no, I don't believe them as, I don't believe they're Christian brethren. Okay. And someone asked a question that's related to that, because I think we were speaking within the context of justification by faith alone, and that perhaps there's an implication of salvation by works. Uh, and someone in the comments brought up the issue of, of synergism. So mm -hmm. um, can synergists be saved in your well, estimation? Yeah. If if by synergism, it is the belief that you participate in, in your salvation uh, towards um, being regenerated and, and born again, I don't believe a synergist can be saved. Now, that's not to say that there are not people who may be ignorant of, of the grace of God and, and they're trusting in Christ and, and they're completely trusting in Christ, but they have this misperception that somehow they made that choice, as in mm -hmm. the Armenian case. All of the reformers, uh, the magisterial reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwing, all of them were saved while they were in the Roman Catholic Church, all of them, mm -hmm. before they broke off. And so they were in that system and, and eventually they left it. And so I'm willing to say that if you believe that your works contributed towards your salvation, you're lost. You cannot be saved with the understanding that your works contributed. That's the Galatian heresy, that's the Judaizers. But if you're talking about a Christian who believes Christ and trusts Christ alone, but they have the misperception, they have the, 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 the theological misperception that somehow they 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 work towards that or they made that decision i think that they are truly saved i think they are theologically wrong because i i've met many non-calvinist folks who believe that christ alone saves and they're trusting christ alone and they'll say i gave my life to jesus was when i was a, a 12 year old kid and so forth and so on uh, and so i think that 
I think that there are many who think they contributed to their salvation, although they are theologically in error. And there, I think there are those who truly believe that their salvation was bought uh, with their faith and their works, like um, uh, cultists, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. These people actually believe that they work toward the salvation. Roman Catholics who believe that the sacraments will save them are not going to be saved. Um, mm. That's not to say that there aren't Roman Catholics who are truly trusting in Christ. But from my experience, what I found is that they cannot remain in the Roman church. They eventually okay. leave. Okay. Um, here's a, a comment. Maybe you want to respond. Without the thousand-year-old hierarchy of a Catholic doctrine, there will be chaos in the Christian church. Well, there's chaos in the Roman Catholic Church, and there really <laughs> has always been chaos in the Roman Catholic Church, from the, the, the Babylonian captivity to the uh, the four popes running the church at the same time, moving the, the headquarters from Rome to Avignon. Uh, the Roman Church has always been a divisive church. Uh, and so... Um, I think Christ has sustained his church throughout history. I don't think there was ever a time when Christ did not have his people, his elect people. Um, Jesus promised he would be with his church to the end of the age. That does not mean, and I'm using a bit of Augustine's uh, mystical church, invisible church here. There are people in the visible church that that are not saved. And then there are people in the visible church that are saved. Uh, but the Lord knows those that are his. and through the dark periods of, of church history, Christ raised up men and women to be his lights. John Huss and John and, and uh, John uh, Wycliffe and, and so forth. So to say that the church would be in tatters if we didn't have 1,000-year-old uh, hierarchy of, of the Catholic Church is absolute nonsense. Christ is the head of his church, and Christ is leading his church, and he continues to lead his church. And the whole idea of the Reformation is post-Tenebrous looks after darkness light hmm. that light comes from holy scripture yeah all right very good uh, a friend of mine uh, andy says i think it's important to remember that hank is relatively new to the orthodox faith and that is true uh that's not something that uh, i did not have hank on pretending that he is the grand pumba of all eastern orthodox theology um we we spoke about that um i just thought that he was a significant uh Christian personality, and it was a big deal when he converted, and I yeah. thought it'd be a good opportunity to have him come on and explain yeah. from his perspective. But yes, there are others who would do a much better job in explicating their position. Um, Nate asks the question, um, hi, Eli, I will toss this over to you. Um, my uncle is Greek Orthodox. Are there any distinctives between Greek and other Orthodox positions to keep in mind when talking to Greek Orthodox people? Well, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church uh, is in fellow is in communion with the Patriarch of Constantinople, and therefore there really is not much difference. Uh, there are differences when you look at the churches of the East, like the Coptic churches, the Church of Egypt, the Copts. Um, their liturgy is very similar to the Orthodox Church, uh, but they do differ uh, in some areas. Uh, they 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 uh, reject Chalcedon. And so they have a view of the hypostatic union that is deemed to be heretical by the Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same would apply to the Ethiopian Church and so forth. So what I would suggest is this. Give your uncle the straight gospel. Uh, give him the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God's grace. Uh, preach repentance unto him. Um, he's trusting his church to save him. And his church is not going to be able to save him. It is Christ alone that saves. So be faithful to Christ. Be faithful to the gospel. Give your uncle the gospel message. That's what he needs. That's the power of God unto salvation. Uh, 
to all who believe. Mm. All right, Planting as Bulldog says, uh, so to me, Hank doesn't necessarily seem like the top tier Orthodox apologist. Have you thought of getting a qualified Orthodox theologian or a philosopher on? Well, I have been constantly, uh, people have been pointing this out. Um, here's here's the deal, okay? There's nothing set in stone. I do not want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I have reached out to Dr. James White and asked him if he uh, is willing to debate, where I, where I would be moderating, uh, if he's willing to debate Jay Dyer. A lot of people have pointed to Jay Dyer as a good representative of the Orthodox position. And Dr. White has said, um, just in passing, there's nothing set in stone and there's a lot going on over at um, um, Alpha and Omega Ministries, but he said that that could be a possibility. So don't know when. I'm going to try my best to uh, you know, be consistent and kind of check in every now and then. But as soon as something like that can happen, which I hope it does, um, I'll let folks know because I definitely want a fair representation of, of both sides. Okay. All right. Uh, someone asks, have I ever thought about getting Trent Horn on, uh, or Patrick Mag Madrid? No, I have not because my focus was Eastern Orthodoxy. So Catholicism wasn't the focus, uh, maybe, maybe in, in the future. Okay. Let's see here. I think this is a good one. Um, Dr. Costa that you could address. Some Orthodox told me Calvinism is like Islam. And I think mm. that's within the context of their, their kind of fatalistic view, their determinist view. Is there a difference between Muslim determinism and reformed, um, I guess our view of, of God's sovereignty and, and how he's meticulously sovereign over all the. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. In, uh, in the Christian view, God, God's decrees have a purpose, and that is his ultimate glory, uh, to bring about his, his maximal glory. And so um, the reason why they say that Orthodox, uh, that Calvinism is like Islam is because in Islam, there's a very hard doctrine. Uh, it's called Qadr in Arabic. There's a very hard doctrine of predestination. But the difference with Islam is that Allah picks and chooses people not based on any grand purpose. Allah can pick and choose people for what, just for reasons that are known to him alone. There's, there's this understanding that God in Islam is beyond our understanding. He is unknowable. He's completely transcendent. And we do not understand his purposes. And that's why Muslims always say, inshallah, inshallah, meaning if Allah wills, if Allah wills. Mm. And so the hard determinism that we find in Islam is such that no Muslim has assurance of their salvation. Uh, a Muslim could serve all his life, and then in the last minute before death, Allah will send him to hell. Uh, a Muslim may, a person may live a wicked life, and they'll come uh, within the door of, of death, and then Allah will say, I want you to be saved. So there is no grand purpose of predestination within Islam, because no one knows Allah's will. He is completely unknowable. Whereas in, in the Calvinist or Reformed view, God has a purpose. He works all things uh, uh, he works all things for his people to those that are called according to his purpose. He does all things according to the counsel of his will. And so the God of scripture is a God of purpose. This is not the God of Islam. The God of Islam is a completely different deity altogether. Hmm. All right. Very good. Um, do Eastern Orthodox have to be classical theists? Even if I rejected the five solas, I can't be a Catholic for this reason. Are you familiar with classical theism? Um, by classical theism, is he talking about divine simplicity? Is that what he the may, he may be, I, I do understand that simplicity is part of that discussion. So um, yeah. if you understand, I mean, don't, you don't feel obligated to try and if yeah. you don't understand the question, but yeah, um, I mean, if by classical theists, 
they're talking about about divine simplicity they're they're not really huge fans of that because they see divine simplicity as as a Thomistic understanding thomas aquinas really really um he wrote extensively on this as a, as an earmark of of roman catholicism um and so if that's what you're talking about um, yes uh dr costa he he's yeah. He's sending in some more commentary. Yeah. He says, okay. yes, the four, the four classical attributes, simplicity, immutability, timeless, and impassibility. Mm -hmm. So that's the context mm -hmm. of his well, question. Well, those, those are things that those are things that we would accept as well. We believe that God is impassable, and we believe that God is immutable. Those are attributes of the God of Scripture. Um, but to be a Roman Catholic, uh, you would have to adopt this idea of divine simplicity that Thomas Aquinas uh, advocated for. Uh, mm -hmm. From my understanding, that is something that the Orthodox don't accept and don't subscribe to. Okay. This is a great question. I think this is an important question to answer. Hopefully you give a nice, good answer to this question here. Um, I don't know if this is related, but how would we respond when someone presents 1 Peter 3.21 as support that baptism saves? And here it is. Yeah. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Right, right. Well, I think we need to look at the context, and I think what Peter is doing is he, he's talking about the flood, and he's using an analogy. The word that Peter uses there is the word antitupos, the antitype, that baptism mm -hmm. is an antitype. It baptism uh, is illustrating uh, what God actually does. In other words, it's not the removal of dirt from the body. So Peter's not saying that this water has this magical effect on your body, but that baptism saves you as an antitype, just like the waters of the flood kept the ark afloat and while destroying everybody else, baptism is a picture of what God has done for you in Christ. So it's not baptism itself, but baptism as an antitype is communicating what the reality has been accomplished in your life. Um, and so this is a favorite text that many in the Orthodox Church, and Roman Catholic Church, and even the Lutherans, uh, they'll take that, te that text to prove baptism regeneration. So Peter's making it very clear. The water doesn't do anything to you. It it's not the removal of the dirt. It is a response of a good conscience towards God. And mm. so the act of baptism is a picture of what has already happened. And so in baptism, we die with Christ and we are buried. That's why immersion is the perfect picture for this. You are buried in the watery grave and you come out from the watery grave into new life. Not that baptism accomplishes that, but baptism is a reenactment, if you will. It is a picture of the reality. And that's what Peter is getting at. That's why he uses the word an antitype. Hmm. All right. And this is the last question, and it is for me. It's unrelated, but I'll, I'll take it. It's the last one here. Um, I know some people who have followed me n n know that I, I used to uh, used to flirt with Molinism <laughs> back in the day. Um, the question is, uh, what is the biggest reason why you accept Calvinism over Molinism? Uh, that's M-O-L-I-N-I-S-M, but no, not to be too picky. Is it strictly a bias against the denomination of who proposed the Molinist theory? 
Uh, well, Molinism was developed by a Jesuit counter-reformer, Louis de Molina, and um, he developed this system to answer the theological and philosophical question of how to reconcile um, God's meticulous sovereignty and uh, human freedom and responsibility. Now, if I can be perfectly clear on this, and I think this is very important, and I know it's going to be a generic answer that people would expect me to say, but it's true, is the reason why I'm a Calvinist is because out of all the positions that I have looked into and have flirted with, um, I find the Calvinistic uh, interpretation and use of scripture to be the most exegetically, biblically derived out of any position. Even with some of its theological and philosophical difficulties, I think it does the most justice to a proper exegetical approach to the text. When I adopt the Molinistic perspective, what I find is not a solid exegetical approach to scripture. What I find is an attempt to answer a theological and philosophical question, which in and of itself is not wrong. But if that is the basis upon which you then have to now foist upon the scriptures to answer this question that the scripture isn't asking, I think that's a problem. Um, now there's more to it, but generally speaking, I find Calvinism, uh, you know, the five solas, you know, the kind of the basic soteriological perspective of, of the reformed uh, tradition. It, it's just so scriptural to me. And I'm very much committed to what the Bible says, even if that means adopting certain theological positions that cause me to be unable to answer certain questions that I would like answered. I think that Molinism, uh, it, let me, let me, let me share this one thing and I'll, and I'll, I'll end with this. I, this because this was a big thing for me. When I was studying Molinism, I found myself entrenched in philosophy. When I was studying Calvinism, I found myself entrenched in the scriptures. I know that might sound stereotypical for people like, oh yeah, Molinists have their biblical defense too, but there's something about the reformed tradition that entrenches you in the scriptures. Does it mean it's perfect? No. But for me, that is a plus, and that is what drew me to the Calvinist position, and that is what led me to, and other issues, philosophical reasons, well, that led me to um, straying away from the Molinist position. So I hope that answers the question. Uh, Dr. Costa, Thank you so much. I want to point other people to uh, the previous episodes. This was a part two. Um, Dr. Costa offered his um, his knowledge of church history and interacting with these ideas in the previous uh, video as well. And of course, you can see the original discussion uh, with myself and um, Hank Hanegraaff um, uh, prior to that. I want to thank you so, so much, Dr. Costa. You My have pleasure. been an engaging guest, knowledgeable, funny and definitely not boring to listen to. So um, I very much appreciate you coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. And everyone else who's uh, listening, again, keep your, your ears peeled for uh, future updates with regards to Revealed Apologetics website. And um, if you have any questions for me with regards to topics you'd like me to cover, you can email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Um, and I will keep you guys updated on future things that, that I'll be doing as well. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.